The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Well, please open your Bibles to John chapter 21. John chapter 21, and what we're going to do is start there and move a little bit backwards, because I want to make some introductions this week and next week to really what is the most important week in history. It's a complicated week. It's full of lots of uh, scholarly debate. It's full of lots of passion. But most of all, it's full of the last words and testament of our Lord Jesus Christ before the cross. How can you decide what is important to a person? How do you really determine what's a priority, what's significant, what's most important to someone? What criteria would you use in your own life to decide that which is most significant to you? Well, truth is, it's actually really simple. Simplicity is this. What occupies your time and attention is that which is most important to you. That which occupies your time, that which occupies your attention, is clearly that which is most important to you. Now that principle applies in a lot of areas, but applies, for, for example, in relationships. We give the most time and the most attention to those who are most important to us, right? Principle applies to hobbies. We give the most time and attention to what interests us most. I have no time or attention devoted to the study of mushrooms. It applies to your letters, to your emails. The time and attention you devote to each paragraph and each subject reveals that which is most important in that email or in that letter. The same principle applies in human writings and in human writers. Look at a novel and they'll, they'll teach you in, in um, college classes and in high school classes that that which the author spends the most time developing is that which is most important in a work. Well, the same principle applied in the Bible as well. What the human writers and the Holy Spirit include in the Bible are all and only that which is most important for us to know to learn, to cherish. The time and attention that a specific book of the Bible devotes to a given subject, a given doctrine, a given event is critical both in our understanding and our application. That which is most important to a biblical writer ought to be most important to you and to me. If something occupies time and space and chapters and verses, it's an obvious indication and a hint that the author is telling you, pay close attention. Now let's think about that in reference to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John is the record of John talking about his friend, Jesus. Now in understanding the Gospel of John, you have to get your arms around a little bit the person of John. John was no ordinary man. John wasn't even an ordinary disciple. He was always listed in those, that triumvirate of people who were closest to Jesus, Jesus Peter, James, and John. John was uh, the one who was leaning close on Jesus' breast at the Last Supper. He was the one who he actually calls in his own gospel the disciple whom Jesus loved. It's not a stretch for most scholars to say that John was likely the best friend of Jesus during his earthly ministry, during his earthly life. 
Now, just to understand that a little bit, look over at chapter 1 of 1 John. We'll come back to John 21 in a second. John, 1 John, rather, chapter 1. When he's writing a letter about doctrine, about the good news, about what it means to theologize and live doctrinally, he says this, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we've seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That's the very phrase, the word, that he begins the Gospel of John with. He's saying, we're talking about, I'm talking about my experience, my human relationship, the years that I had, those three years walking in Galilee and Judea around Jerusalem, the Decapolis. I touched with my hands. Verse 2, and the life was manifested and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to you. That reminds us of John 17, 3, where he's, Jesus says, eternal life is knowing him and knowing the Father. John says, we knew the eternal life. He uses the term eternal life as a synonym for Jesus himself. Verse 3, what we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. So John says in his first epistle, I'm writing so that you'll have joy. I'm writing so you'll understand Jesus. But your understanding of Jesus, John says, is way different than mine. My understanding of Jesus was was eye to eye, face to face. We beheld him with our hands. We touched him. We had meals with him. We, We sat with him. We walked with him. We slept out in the wilderness with him. We shared residences with him. In other words, I knew him flesh to flesh. That same John, though, had a very different description of his best friend Jesus in the first chapter of Revelation. Just turn a few books over to Revelation. The book is, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. But look down at verse 9. I, John... Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and the kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. You know he was exiled to Patmos, spent his life, the waning years of his life out there. I was in the spirit of the Lord, spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like, a, like the sound of a trumpet saying, write a book. Write in this book what you see. Send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like like a son of man. This is Jesus. Clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a burning flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in the furnace, and his voice was like the sound of of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like, like the sun shining in its strength. 
Now, John saw Jesus day in and day out for three years. Ate, slept, walked. But he never had an experience like verse 17. When I saw him, who is him? The resurrected, glorified Lord Jesus. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last, the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and of Hades. What a stark contrast to sitting around the fire in the Galilean wilderness talking to Jesus. John had seen Jesus in his earthly manifestation, his his earthly cloaked glory. Remember in um, uh, Matthew 17, Jesus goes up and he peels back his flesh and shows them a glimpse of his glory. He saw Jesus fully human and recognized as everyone around him as only human, but he also understood Jesus as fully divine. And here in Revelation 1, he sees him as glorified and fully divine. John knew Jesus like no other. So it makes sense that when the Holy Spirit made his decision to inspire four men to write four accounts of Jesus and his life and his ministry and what he taught, he would choose John. Now, the choosing of the gospel writers by the Holy Spirit is very interesting. Only two of them were apostles. Um, Matthew was, um, Mark wasn't. Mark was uh, probably very young when Jesus was was alive and and was uh, saved through the ministry of Paul. John Mark was. Um, Matthew and John being the apostles, Luke and Mark being non-apostles, but the Holy Spirit still had had these four men write their account of Jesus' life. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar. In fact, we call them the synoptic gospels. They, They track along chronologically pretty much the same course of Jesus' life. They're called synoptics, but John is really very, very different. John is is a different approach to Jesus. John is is an understanding of Jesus from a theological perspective. It's not so much uh, uh, following his chronology from birth to death. In fact, he starts in eternity past. In the beginning was the Word and finishes up with the crucifixion and the resurrection. John is speaking to us about his friend Jesus and telling us that he was God, very God, and man, truly man. Just think for a moment. If I could tell you that there was an account of Jesus Christ by a man who lived with him for three years, ate with him, walked with him, traveled with him, and he wrote something that you could read in the better part of a couple hours, an account of Jesus' life. Wouldn't that be intriguing if this was his best friend? And yet that's exactly what we have in the Gospel of John, and it sits on our chest of drawers or in our cars and our Bibles day in and day out, begging, raising his hand, pick me to read. John wrote about his friend. John was the disciple that Jesus loved. Leaning close on Jesus the night before his crucifixion, And by the way, John is the only one of those 12, the only one who actually showed up at the crucifixion. Even from the cross, Jesus identifies John 
and entrusts the care of his mother to John. Everyone else is scattered. John finds himself standing in that little crowd watching these three criminals be executed. And John is there. He was there from the very beginning in Jesus' choosing of him with his brother James and also at the very end. So it makes perfect sense that the Holy Spirit would have John talk about Jesus in one of the Gospels. Well, as we begin our study this morning, we're going to look into John's Gospel. Uh, we're going to be looking into it, um, kind of parachuting into the middle, uh, but, but there's a specific reason for that. I would love to start at verse 1 and go all the way through, and maybe we'll finish chapter 17 and start over again. I'm not exactly sure. But this is a very precious and special place in the Scriptures to me personally. And if I can just tell you why we're beginning this study of John chapter 13 through 17, from a personal standpoint, I hope it'll be helpful. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was... Uh, I had done the Through the Bible in a Year. I had done the uh, Only Study What You're Studying for Your Sermons. I had done the Read Five Chapters of the Old Testament. I had done this, this thing for about a month where you read 10 chapters of the Bible every day. I tried all sorts of things and, and just really felt like I needed, to, I needed to slow down and to study something that I could be in for a while. All of those are great methods of Bible reading and Bible study. But as I was reading through John, I, I was captured by the the simplicity and the depth at the same time of what happens between chapter 13 and chapter 17, typically called the upper room discourse. This is Jesus in the last night before his crucifixion, spending his last supper with his men. John's account of this is very different than everyone else. John doesn't even mention the last supper. He doesn't even mention the, um, uh, the, the ordinance of communion. But he does talk thoroughly and deeply about the conversation that happened during and around that meal that the other biblical writers, the other uh, three gospel writers, don't even address at all. So I began looking at it and thought, this is, this is something I, I, could, I could really sink my teeth into. Now, I want to work backwards from John 21. You can go back there and show you why this section of Scripture is so important and worthy of our study for the next few months. At the end of John, John's wrapping up his gospel. He's putting the final ink on his letter, his uh, book rather. And he, he says something remarkable at verse, chapter 21, verse 24, the last two verses of John. He says, this is the disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. And what he's saying there is this is verifiable. There were many people to witness everything I've told you here. Verse 25, this, is, this, is, this gives me chills to even think about. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, and which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. That's incredible. Now, now listen to what he said. He didn't say... If every book in the world was about Jesus, that would be close. He didn't say that. He said if the whole world, every bit of space, every molecule of space were occupied with books about Jesus, it still wouldn't contain the wonder of who he was and what he did. So why did he write what he wrote? 21 chapters. Why, why did he pick these, these things, these 21 chapters to to expose us to. We'll turn back one chapter to chapter 20, John chapter 20, verse 30. 
He tells us exactly the reason for his writing. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Just stop right there. Just imagine all that Jesus did, all that Jesus said that we have no record of. I wonder if he raised other people from the dead. I wonder if he fed other people with fish and loaves. I wonder what he said. I wonder how much he repeated that, that amazing sermonic content in the Sermon on the Mount. All the things he did, it would, have, it would have been over and above our capacity even pack into our minds. And yet, John says, I'm going to write something, and it's only going to be this, only 21 chapters. Why are you writing what you're writing, John? Verse 31. But these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. It's evangelistic that you will know that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, the living Christ, the one who died for the sins of those who have believed, the one who was raised from the dead, the one who ascended into heaven, the one who is alone worthy of worship and praise. It's evangelistic, but it goes beyond that. And that believing you may have life in his name. Notice that everything John wrote in had a specific purpose, to, to believe in Jesus as the only Savior and having believed to experience life in his name. In other words, to live life with him, to have life that, that experiences, a, experiences a resurrected Savior, the reality of the living Christ. As we'll find out in chapter 14, to experience the fullness of his presence on earth by faith. So, if John has written an account of Jesus, and it's the, for the purpose of teaching us how to experience life with Jesus, then it's appropriate to ask the question that we began with. You can tell what's most important to someone by looking at what they give time and attention to. What did John give time and attention to? Here's the math. John's gospel is divided into 21 chapters. Of those 21 chapters, five chapters, 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, five chapters are devoted to one conversation. Now try that on in your mind. Of all that John could have written, it could have filled the whole world with books. Of all that he did write in 21 chapters, roughly one-fourth of what he wrote, five chapters, is devoted to one conversation. Would you say that that's important, that he gave time and attention to that? He spends more time on this than any other part of Jesus' life. He spends more time on this than the crucifixion. Whatever happened and whatever was said in those chapters is obviously of the highest importance to John. Therefore, it should be to you and me as well. If everything were written down, fill all the books in the world and all the world itself, but a quarter of his gospel is one conversation. That conversation happened in the upper room. It's called the upper room discourse, the upper room conversation. It's when Judas betrayed him. It's when the Last Supper was instituted. It's when the promise of the Holy Spirit was made. It's when the comfort of understanding how to live by faith in a living, resurrected Savior who is invisible took place. What is this section of God's Word all about? Well, Let's review where we are and get up to speed from the Gospel of John. Jesus has been on a very steady march to Jerusalem. 
If you look at a map, and most of your Bibles will have a map, map of the life of Jesus. He was in and around Jerusalem, spent most of his time in the north, working down the Jordan Valley, uh, in the Decapolis, went to Gentile territory as well, but kind of hit and miss, in and out of Jerusalem. But make no mistake, the people in Jerusalem knew who he was. When he was arguing, debating up in the north, in Galilee, and up in the synagogues in Capernaum, those rumors and those stories of him teaching who he said he was, debunking the Pharisees and the Sadducees, all of those went south and made their way to Jerusalem. The leaders in Jerusalem were intrigued about Jesus, but they were also afraid of him. Why? Wouldn't you be afraid of someone who could do what Jesus did? Mostly, their, their positions of authority were threatened. They were afraid they were going to lose what they had, not afraid that they would not bow the knee to the king of Israel, the Lord Jesus himself. Jesus is on a steady march to the cross. From the very beginning of his ministry, this three-year ministry, it's all about moving toward Jerusalem to be crucified as a substitutionary atonement for believers. He knows he's going to be crucified, We'll find out in the coming weeks. He says in the first few verses, Jesus knowing, knowing his time had come. He knew exactly what was happening. The cross wasn't a mistake. He understood the timing. We'll we'll get into this next week. This was the Passover when the uh, 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 substitutionary lambs would be sacrificed, which is when Jesus would be sacrificed himself. This was no accident. This was specifically planned out in time by the Lord and by the Father marching to Jerusalem. Being God, Jesus knows that after his death and after his subsequent resurrection and ascension, that he will eventually leave the world and leave his believers in a world, here it is, with him, without him. What do you mean by that? With him in that they had a relationship with him by faith, without him in that he was invisible, he was gone. His presence was there, but he was where? Romans 8 tells us, sitting at the right hand of God, making intercession for believers. Jesus knew that it was going to be very difficult for these 12 men and us following in their wake to live life by faith, to live a life with, 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 with no evidence, with no substance, with no proofs. I'll never forget the college student who came in a very sarcastic tone, sat with me in my office and said, I will believe everything in the Bible and you have one hour to prove it. I said, I can do better than that. In 10 seconds, I can prove that I can't prove it. That's why we live by faith, right? The whole purpose of Jesus living is that we would live lives that were were marked by faith, the evidence of things hoped for, the, the surety, the conviction of things not seen, and people would see us living life for someone who is not here physically and would believe in him because of our testimony, It's a remarkable plan that the Lord had. He knows it's going to be hard. So in this last conversation, really the whole conversation is about Jesus teaching them and and, and us, how do you live life with an invisible Savior and at the same time have a credible witness How do you live life with him without him? 
Well, he prepares them for life and ministry in a new world that would be lived by faith, not by hanging out in Galilee and in the Jordan Valley. Any study of church history will reveal that these chapters, John chapter 13 to 17, are among the most precious to those who've gone before us. These were the favorite chapters of those who were martyred and burned at the stake. These were the, fam- the, the, the favorite chapters of the Puritans when they began their movement away from the, the Church of England that was persecuting. These were, the, these were the chapters that were sometimes in, in the bigger churches preached first in the Scottish revolution against the Catholic throne. It's all preparation for life, for ministry by faith. John's narration of these events, uh, as I said, is very different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Nothing about the Last Supper in here, yet it's at the Last Supper that this happens. But he does include more of what Jesus said than the other writers do. And that's what we're going to be focusing on. Now, this account is intensely interesting and gives a view into Jesus' heart that no other passage really gives. This is Jesus personally, privately, intimately, with his men only hours before his death, a death that he knew was only hours away. For five consecutive chapters, we find John recording things that are precious to the souls of believers. J.C. Ralph says it like this, we can never be thankful enough that the Holy Ghost has caused these things to be written for our learning, end quote. I think he's right. We ought to be overwhelmingly thankful that we have these five chapters. Now, let me be careful and quick to say, these aren't the most important chapters in the Bible, kind of. I like what Spurgeon says. He says when he came to, to figure out which, which verse he was to preach on, he said, I felt like every verse in the Bible was raising his hand saying, pick me, pick me. And I feel like every verse in the Bible raises his hand almost and says, make me your favorite, make me your favorite. Well, for the next few months, this is going to be my favorite. So that's okay with you. We're going to move through it together. Like I said, I've been working through this for about two years privately without a lot of deep study, and just a simple reading is, is just a salve for your soul. If you need comfort, these chapters are for you. If you need instruction, these chapters are for you. If you need to fight sin, these chapters are for you. If you need to improve and increase your faith in Christ, these chapters are for you. Nothing has impacted my life in my memory like these five chapters. So for the next few months... We're going to be looking at them together on Sunday mornings. And we have divine permission to eavesdrop on Jesus talking to his disciples. The Holy Spirit made sure we would hear what he said, what it was about, and how it has to do with the way we live day in and day out. Now, in order to set the the scene in our minds, we're, we're going to get after this almost like a news reporter would. This week and next week, we're going to ask five simple questions of this text. You know these questions well. You probably all know what they are, right? The five W's. Who, what, when, where, why? What is going on in this scene? We know it's the upper room. We'll, dis- we'll describe what that is a little bit uh, next week. We know it's uh, the week of his passion, which is the Passover week. We'll get into the details of that. And we know it's the night before he's, uh, the night that he's arrested. The next day he's going to be crucified. What day is that? How does that work out? We're going to be looking at that next week as well. But what we're going to do just this morning, because it's important, is simply answer the question of who. Who is involved in this last final discourse? Who was at this event, the upper room discourse? So if you want an outline, this week and next week will be part one and part two. We'll do uh, point one this week, and Lord willing, we'll do the last four next week. 
Who was at this event? For this, we go back to John chapter 13. Uh, He had brought his disciples to the upper room, and they had found themselves there. We'll find specifically and geographically where that is next week. But he brought his disciples there to have, verse 1 says, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing his hour had come, that he would depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The question is, who were his own? Well, we can extrapolate from that. That's obviously any believer by extension. But here is talking about the 12. The 12. These were the 12 disciples. These were the apostles. Now, included in this group would be Judas for sure. But these were the 12 men he'd walked with and worked with for the last three years. The word for disciple refers to a learner, a follower. It's someone who who just simply attached their life to someone else and said, I want to learn from you and be like you. The word apostle means one who is sent out. These disciples, except for Judas, would become apostles. Twelve disciples followed Jesus, learned from him, were trained personally by him. After his resurrection, after Jesus' ascension, Jesus sent the disciples out as witnesses, according to Matthew 28, 18 to 20, and Acts chapter 1, verse 8. They were then uh, referred to from then on as the 12 apostles. However, even when Jesus was still on the earth, he did use the term disciple and apostle interchangeably a few times. Who are these men? Well, if you want the original list, you can find find them uh, early in Matthew and early in uh, Luke. But if you put all the lists together, here's who they were. First, you have Simon, who is called Peter. Simon, who had his name changed in Matthew 16 to Petros, to Peter, uh, who was the leader of the group, as many have called him, the disciple with the foot-shaped mouth. He was the one who was most vocal. He was the one who was always out in the lead. He was the one who was trying to make decisions. Sometimes good decisions, and as we'll see in a minute, not always. He had a brother named Andrew. What would it be like to be Peter's brother? Poor Andrew. We know little about him, and that's because he was Peter's brother. Yet James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. These are, this is James and John. This is a different James than wrote the book of James. That James was Jesus' half-brother. This is James, the disciple. He had Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, another one, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the zealot, and then finally we have Judas Iscariot, who would betray him. Just a little heads up, in a few weeks, we are going to spend a great deal of time dealing with the person and the enigma of Judas. Judas' full betrayal comes into center focus in the middle of this chapter. The Bible lists the 12 disciples and apostles in Mark 3 and in Luke 6. Now, if you compare all three passages, Matthew, Mark, and Luke's, uh, as well as even the, uh, the description in Acts, there are some minor name differences. It seems that Thaddeus was also known as a, a Judas, not Judas Iscariot, the son of James. And um, uh, uh, there was a Labaius who was uh, Thaddeus as well. But Simon the Zealot was known as Simon the Canaanite. I think he liked Simon the Zealot probably better. Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus, was replaced, by the way, in Acts chapter 1, as you know, uh, verses 20 to 26, by Matthias. There's a huge debate. Was that the right or wrong thing? I read so many pages this week 
ridiculous pages about whether Matthias was legitimate, whether they, they, because they cast a lot, whether that was right or wrong, whether he was in or out, whether he was supposed to be out, and really Paul was the, the, uh, the last apostle. And let me tell you, the Bible doesn't tell us. It says there's Matthias, and it says you got Paul. Which of those are going to rule on one of the 12 thrones? I don't know. But I'm looking forward to finding out. The 12 disciples and apostles were ordinary men. If I can encourage you to read a book by my friend John MacArthur, 12 Ordinary Men, it is an incredible study of the lives of these men. These were not guys who walked around with halos. They were normal guys, just like you and like me. And Jesus called them and did extraordinary things through them. In fact, Acts chapter 17, verse 6 says, where are these men who have upset the world? That's quite a designation. What was the change? Well, Acts chapter 4, verse 13 has this simple phrase. How were they they, uh, uh, understood? They were men who have simply, quote, been with Jesus. I want to over-devotionalize that, but what a great designation. They were known as men who had been with Jesus. We would all do well to have that designation. Now, the time with the Lord in the upper room was extraordinary, and it was more than a little bit confusing to them. These are, you're going to wrestle as we go through this passage with these guys, what they understood, what they didn't, what they were sure about, what they weren't, what they, they changed as they were talking to Jesus about. Their whole understanding of theology was actually in constant flow and flux during these passages. They'd followed Jesus for three years, been in his classroom constantly, listened to him, listened to him, listened to him, but had they really learned? If you go back to Caesarea Philippi, where Jesus uh, reveals uh, to the men who he is, because uh, he asks, what's the rumor mill? People say, well, some say you're a reincarnated guy, but we believe, according to Peter, you're Christ, the son of the living God. Flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, Jesus says. In other words, good job, Peter. Explicitly informing them there, that he is not only the Christ, but that he would go to Jerusalem and die. Peter says, excuse me, and he calls time out, pulls Jesus aside and says, this going to Jerusalem and dying stuff? No, you've got it wrong. You're the king of Israel. You're the Messiah. I just said so. God told me. You're the Messiah. You're the king. You're going to go to Jerusalem, and we're going to figure this thing out, and we're going to reign with you. To which Jesus responds to Peter, get Behind me, who? Satan. Why? Because from the very beginning of Jesus revealing his identity, he was telling them it's all about his death. It's about his payment for sins. It's about him being the Lamb of God. But the disciples didn't get it. Oh, wow, did they not get it? Even as they approached Jerusalem for this final Passover week, where he would be condemned to death, they still didn't get it. Now, in order to get our minds around who these men really were, I want to briefly uh, go through a quick passage back in Mark. Well, this will be the last thing we'll have time for today. In Mark chapter 10, um, this is is one of those head-scratching passages. Self-descriptive. Mark chapter 10, verse 32. They, this is Jesus and his disciples, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. They were approaching Jericho. And if you've been to Israel, you know that that is a 15 or so mile up 
uh, road, a road that goes straight up to Jerusalem. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking. I love this. He was walking on ahead of them. Not reluctant, not afraid, not deterred. He had a calendar to keep, and he was on schedule. And they were amazed. Why were they amazed? Those who followed were fearful. Why were they fearful? And again, he took the 12 aside and began to tell them what was going to happen. This is why they were afraid, saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. Pretty explicit, isn't it? Pretty omniscient, isn't it? Now, you would think if Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, on his way to this upper room, in other words, on his way to this week, and his disciples were hearing this, they would have questions about that. Watch what happens next. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. He said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant that we may sit on your right and one on your left in your glory. I don't think they were talking about in heaven. I think they were talking about when he gets to the top of the hill of Jerusalem and sets up the kingdom. But Jesus said to them, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, We are able. Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism which I am being baptized. In other words, you're going to die just like me for the gospel. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Hearing this, I love this, the other 10 began to feel indignant with James and John. Why? Because they wanted to sit on the right and the left. How did they get access to Jesus? Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it's not this way among you. Don't be like that. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What's going on here? This is like brain-dead Discipleness. Jesus, amazed, amazingly, ahead of them, walking up the hill, going to Jerusalem. He's on his way to die. He's told them over and over and over, all the way back up uh, months and months before in, in Caesarea Philippi, I'm going to die. Peter tried to prevent him from this. They know he's going to Jerusalem. He calls them aside and says, Listen, I'm going to go die. They didn't get it then. I think they really thought. Ah, uh, maybe not. Once they see what you can do with fish and bread, you watch. Once they see that you can raise people from the dead, you watch. I think they really thought, this death thing, yeah, whatever. But let's talk about the kingdom. Let me tell you where I want to sit. They didn't get it. You're going to see over and over in these five chapters, Jesus will say something, 
And what they should respond to in questions about that, they just go off track to something else. Just like you and me. They were out of sync with the priority of the Lord's death and burial and resurrection and ascension. They were all, are you ready for this? They were all in this for what they could get out of Jesus. They wanted something from Jesus. My question to myself is, where am I in this scene? Would I have been indignant to James and John? It doesn't say they were indignant because they missed the opportunity to talk about the crucifixion. It says they were indignant. What would they have been indignant about? I think the same thing you and I were. He's going to go up there. He's going to be the king. And those guys are going to be like the closest guys. I can imagine Peter saying, excuse me? Don't you know who the leader is here? They didn't get it. And as much as we have it and have it recorded, it's easy for us not to get it. It's easy for us to see Jesus as something of a genie who gives us our wishes than the one who paid for our sins and died for our souls. The one who has a greater understanding and premium and priority on life after this one than this one. The one who, as we'll see in these coming chapters, prepares us for that day when we'll meet him to look forward to that more than what we get out of him in the meantime. We'll get to this in John 17. Jesus actually prayed for your death as a good thing. In John 17, he says, Father, I long that those who you have given to me will be with me in my kingdom. Thanks, Jesus. Is that a good prayer? Only if your perspective is right. This Discourse, these five chapters, I hope will serve to take our grip on this world and start loosening it up so our eyes are totally and transformingly fixed on the one who calls us and prays for us to be with him in his heavenly kingdom. I'm excited about this. We're going to finish up the four questions next week. But um, when we dive into chapter 13, verse 1, I want you to put your seatbelt on. It is going to be a very encouraging ride. Let's pray together. While your heads are bowed, if you have questions about what it means to be a Christian, if you have questions about what it means to deal with a sin, we would, uh, we would love to talk with you. We have elders and deacons who would love to stay with you this afternoon and and talk through things that are on your heart to pray with you. Just find myself or Bob or ask anyone around if you can talk with them or talk with one of our elders. We would love to be able to serve you in that way. Don't leave this this building with the Lord doing things in your heart that you just want to put off. Deal with them now. That's Bob. He'll come and dismiss us in prayer. And as he does, let's remember to come back tonight. And we'll focus on what it means to have a high view of God.
Father God, we are so thankful for this morning, our time together in your word. Pray that you would help us now prepare our hearts for your word in the next month, few weeks and months. Father, I pray that you would help us to fix our eyes upon you and the message that we will see here in, in John. Father, I pray that you would go with us now and help us as we serve you even this afternoon. In Jesus' name I pray. 